0: How in the world are we going to talk about the Lamb for three Sundays? A lot of people would wanted that, but I want you to know that from the very beginning, you look through the Bible, from the very start, you see a Lamb. You'll see it in the, in the beginning of Genesis. You'll see it with Abraham. You'll see it at the Passover. You'll see it then at the cross, the Lamb at Passover. And then you see it in the end, in Revelation, with the Lamb upon the throne. It is throughout the whole Bible. It is as if God is saying, pay attention to this. This is something important. I want you to see this. And so right now, I'm just going to pray and ask God that He would help us to see and understand not just about a lamb, but about the lamb. Heavenly Father, today uh, I'm going to be sharing something that's going to be difficult for some people to hear. And so Father, I just pray that um, Your Spirit would just be able to communicate this, that You would take all these jumbled words in my mind, my heart, you know, pieces of paper. Lord, I pray that you would just take those words and Lord, help, help them to make sense. And Lord, I pray that you would communicate in a way that I can't. And Father, today that you would do work in people's hearts that no human hands or no human voice can ever do. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. John one twenty nine. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, look, The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Revelation 5, 11-12. Looking into the future, peeking into heaven. John writes, Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, and ten thousand times ten thousands. They didn't have the word millions, I guess. Uh, They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power wealth, and wisdom, and strength, and honor, and glory, and praise. And then a little further in Revelation, a little more obscure verse, talking about a picture of earth in the future, all the inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, another kind of worship is going on, and all whose names who have not been written in the book of life, and here's the phrase I want you to pay attention to, belonging to the lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. See, Jesus appears on the ministry scene in Israel, and He is immediately identified as the Lamb of God. When the Apostle John gives us a peek into heaven, and Jesus is enthroned, all heaven is singing out, identifying Jesus as the Lamb who was slain. A later description of Jesus as a Lamb says that He is a Lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. The Bible gives us a picture of Jesus as the Lamb in the past and in the future. And over the next few weeks, as we approach Easter and Resurrection Sunday, we're going to look at the significance of the Lamb in the past and the future, but also we're going to prayerfully recognize the significance of the Lamb in the present. Now. Today. John the Baptist, he was the forerunner and announcer of Jesus. He was sent ahead of him. He was the first to make this identification of Jesus as the Lamb. The first time John recognizes Jesus as the Son of God, he yells out in front of a crowd, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, if you're a guy in here, you're going to understand what I'm going to say next. If you're a guy and you're being recognized, you want to be recognized and associated with, with things that say you're strong. I mean, that th- you got what it takes. I mean, I- I'm sure it would have been much more appreciated if John would have said, "Look, there's the King of Kings, the Lion of Judah." But instead, he says, "Look, there's the Lamb of God." Man, <laughs> man, good thing, good thing. I mean, I mean, can you think of anything more helpless or weak? Being identified with that. I mean, it's a good thing that Jesus was secure in who he was and what, what his mission was. That he knew what he was about. But, but really, for the people who were listening that day, when those words were spoken, and most of them were Jewish people, they understood the significance of a lamb and in its connection with taking away a person's sin. So for them, there was significance in this statement that Jesus was being identified not just as a lamb, but the lamb of God or from God who was there to take away not just the sin of one person, but the sin of many. Most of us here are not Jewish, and we have no clue as to the significance of Jesus being identified as the lamb. But since many of us have been included in God's amazing grace, and one future day we're going to be all singing in heaven about the lamb it might be a good thing for us to figure out what this is all about so that we know what we're singing about when we get there. I have to warn you that what we're about to talk about is is based on a biblical worldview. For some folks, what I will be describing will sound uncivilized, barbaric, and primitive because I'm going to have to talk about blood. Going to have to. For others what I'm going to be describing, it's going to sound noble. It's going to sound praiseworthy. It's going to sound altruistic because I'm going to talk about sacrificing life for another and talking about love. And this might be hard for some to hear because the Lamb is directly connected to the idea of taking away sin. And some folks don't believe in the concept of sin and evil. Others who do have their own non-biblical ideas about how sin and evil are to be dealt with. So what I'm saying here is is this is going to be this tough stuff. Talking about the Lamb. may sound like weak, gentle kind of stuff, but it's not. It's tough stuff. First things first, though. Here's, Here's the main thought that I hope that you'll walk away with today. From the beginning... From the very beginning, before the making of the world ever began, God knowing all that would happen, knowing that when He made us, that we would walk away from Him, turn away from His ways and do things our own ways, even knowing that, He had from the very beginning in His head the idea of sacrificial love. Before He made us, He knew what He was going to have to do, and He did it. Anyway, isn't that amazing? You know, it wasn't as if something he, you know, it came up after he made us and, and mankind sinned. And he goes, whoops, I didn't know, I didn't know mankind was going to screw up. Well, I better come up with plan B. It wasn't that way. The lamb was slain from the creation of the world. The very nature of God's love is that it is a sacrificial love. You've got to hear that sacrificial love that's what God intended from the foundations of the earth to occur on this planet and what he was going to give to us and I want to show you God's plan of sacrificial love he's give, given pictures and glimpses of it all the way through the Bible from the Old Testament all the way to from the beginning of Genesis all the way to the end in Revelation it's there if you'll just see it if you'll just see it so it starts back with Adam and Eve but before we jump to that, I have to share the second big idea of this Lamb passage. Second second big, big idea is connected to the second part of what John the Baptist said in his statement. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. From the beginning, God had in mind how sin was to be dealt with. And I know that there are many ideas from various religions about the concept of sin and evil. I know about them. In most types of Buddhism sin isn't really seen as the problem. The problem is ignorance. And the cravings of of the self are the problem. Buddhism deals with this through progressively working on self-denial and self-control through series of meditative practices. Most types of Hinduism, they also deal with sin, they call it sin, bad karma, by renouncing the fruit of their labors, by denying any type of reward to themselves. In Islam, Sin is acknowledged as a real thing. But the only hope of dealing with it is hopefully you'll do more good. And hope in the end that the good you've done will outweigh the bad or the sin that you've done in this world. Now I know in saying those things I've given great big generalizations about the beliefs found in certain religions. So let me just give you one great big generalization about the Bible, God's word, and what he says about dealing with sin. Here's what the big generalization. We live in a good world that has gone wrong. And more specifically, we've gone wrong by disregarding God and disobeying by doing things our way instead of his way. And here is the significant difference of what the Bible proclaims and what the Christian faith proclaims of how sin is to be dealt with. We as humans cannot take away our own sin. We cannot deny it away. We cannot meditate it away. We can't outweigh it with the good things we do. God must take care of our sin for us. It means we've got to be dependent on Him. And automatically I know for some folks that just, you're like, okay, that's it. I'm sorry, I'm not going to be dependent on anybody. But that's the way God made things. He wants us to be dependent on Him doesn't matter, there, there's no soap, there's no dye that can wash away the stains of sin. Only Christ. Alright, now that I've given that great big generalization of the Christian faith, just like I gave great big generalizations about other religions, it's out there, thrown out there. But I'm not here to represent other religions, I'm here to rep- be a representative of the Christian faith. And so let me tell you how, from the beginning, God decided how he was going to deal with sin and the connection with all this with the Lamb. Start with Adam and Eve. They, they sin, and the sin does something to them that alters them spiritually and physically. Physically, they were once going to live forever, but now they're going to die, and, and they're going to grow old and die. Spiritually, they once were, uh, they once were the way God initially made them. They are perfect, but now there's defect in them. They know something is different about them. They know something's wrong on the inside, and they're scared about it. So they go and they hide. And somehow, in the physical and spiritual, all being mixed up in that moment, they decide to take care of things by covering things up. And they make some garments out of leaves to cover up on the outside the guilt and shame that was on the inside. God, He comes and He has a big conversation with them. That involves a terrible curse that still affects us today and is connected to sin now. But at the end of this conversation, God does something for Adam and Eve. What is it that God does for them? It's it's in Genesis 3.21. The Lord made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Real simple. might overlook it. But here's the obvious thing here. What Adam and Eve tried to do on their own, a cover-up of sin was inadequate. So God had to provide something else that was better. The less obvious thing here, where did those garments of skin come from? Where'd they come from? There was an animal that had to die to provide those garments. And guess who did the sacrificing of that animal's life? God did. God did it. Now, why didn't He just go out and shear some sheep and make some wool clothing? Why didn't, I mean, they were around. He made them. I mean, why didn't God, why, why didn't He just go pick some cotton and weave some cotton clothing for them? Why did it have to be an animal? Why, in the first time of the history of the planet, did an animal have to die? Why? Why? I don't have all the answers on this to the specifics in the case of Adam and Eve. But on the bigger scale, here are a few biblical and plausible answers to the whys of this question. One was that God was saying He was just. He was just and He was fair and He was without partiality. Sin had to be punished like He said it was before Adam and Eve sinned. He said, if you eat from that tree, you're going to die. He wasn't backing off from what he, was going to say, what he said. Just because he loved Adam and Eve, he wasn't going to let this slide by. He wasn't going to do any little cover-ups. He wasn't going to do favoritism. You know, for a lot of people in the world, that's good news, that God is just. Because there is a lot of injustice in this world. And it's good to know that there is a God that one day is going to take care of things and he is going to make things right. Because there's a lot of people that suffer in this world and they're crying out for justice. And there's some people that say, well, let's let's just sweep it under the rug. Let's just let it slide by. God isn't that way. He doesn't do that. And He wanted Adam and Eve to know that. He wants us to know that. No favoritism. Second thing, God was saying He was also loving and just at the same time. What was the loving thing that He did? He established a substitute. A substitute to take Adam and Eve's punishment. And that was that animal that had to die. And the last thing, God wasn't backing off His words that the punishment of sin is death. That is still the case today. He hasn't backed off of that. Any sin, however small it might be, is punishable by death. That is what God said. That is the way He established it. That is the way of this world. Let me ask you that, this question Did that animal do anything wrong or deserve to die? The answer is no. That animal did nothing wrong, didn't deserve to die. Remember that because that is important. That's important in this story of sacrificial love. All right? The lamb who dies has done no wrong. He was innocent. Remember that picture. Now take a look at Cain and Abel, sons of Adam and Eve. And their story, that's connected to a sacrifice. Genesis 4, verses 3-7. through 7. Now Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. But Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. All right, You can't take fat off an animal while it's still alive. I, mean, I suppose you can. I, do that. I guess they do liposuction now, but they didn't do it back then. <laughs> Okay, so again, we know what's going on here. There's an animal that died, a lamb, because he takes care of flocks. Okay, so the Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. What's up with that? So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? All right, check this out. There's an offering or a sacrifice made to God. Two different ones. One by Abel, one by Cain. Abel kills one of the firstborn of his flock. And Cain, what he does with his sacrifice, he brings some produce from his crops. Notice that Abel didn't bring the runt of the flock, the sick or the main. He brings the firstborn. This comes into play later, too, in the Scriptures. You'll find out more. Jason's going to be talking about this next week as he explains the significance of the Passover and the Passover lamb and the why Jesus died on the Passover. He was crucified on that day. Did you know that? That's amazing. Okay, but back to Cain and Abel. Did you know that this, at this point in the history of mankind, everyone is still vegetarians? Everyone's still veg- vegetarians. They don't kill animals for food. It's not until after the flood that God allows man to use animals for food. So Abel's flocks, they weren't for eating. okay? So yet in this offering scene, a lamb is killed. And Abel's sacrifice of a lamb is accepted as right by God. And in fact, God tells Cain to do what is right. And he will be accepted too. So why was Abel's sacrifice right and Cain's wrong? What's up with that? Why did God make that distinction? The Scriptures really don't clarify about this. But I'm taking a pretty good educated guess here from what I know of the Scriptures, that later happens to occur in, in the history, of what God does with mankind. I'm taking a guess that the offerings were to be sacrifices made for sin. So there had to be something that died. And because, because at the time there were such things as offerings of grain from, from the crops, they were considered Thanksgiving-type Offerings to God. So usually offerings that had nothing to do with sin. So what's up so, with, with something that has to die? Why did God say this was right and in connection with a sacrifice towards sin? Why did something have to die? Well, there's something in the Bible that talks about blood. And in fact, right after the flood, when God allows man to eat animals, God describes it not as, just as blood, but, but lifeblood. God says, but you must not eat meat that has its lifeblood in it. And for your lifeblood, I will surely demand an accounting. I will also demand an accounting from every animal. So there's something important about this, that there's life in the blood. And because of this life in the blood, God arranged it. Again, this is the part that this is just the way God did it. And I have no great explanations for this. But God arranged it so that without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. So why couldn't Abel just nick the little animal, the little lamb with a blade, and let him bleed a little bit and then put a band-aid on it? Why couldn't he just do that? You know, with lamb blood donor. You know, why, why couldn't that happen? Well, you gotta go back to what God said. And he said, in this another foundational idea about punishment and substitution, sin, any sin, is punishable by death. And if Abel doesn't die for his sin, then a substitute must die in his place, a lamb. This whole thing of sacrifice is connected with faith. Faith that God really means what He says. And faith in this idea of a substitute. And that's the way God has arranged it. This whole thing, you see, is, it, it began way in the beginning. It wasn't a, a plan B that God came up with later. It's right from the start. You see, the first people God began working with knew that these sacrifices were acts of faith. This was set up while God was still directly and audibly talking with people. But then later, when God decides to bring out His plan of sacrificial love one step further, He calls out a man named Abram who will be an example of faith. An example of what God will do when he brings his lamb, Jesus. The story of Abraham and Isaac, next little story in Genesis, is is summed up in three verses in the in the book of Hebrews. By, it says this, By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had received the promises was about the sacrifice, his one and only son. Even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead. And figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. In the actual count, Isaac asked his father, The wood and the fire are here, Dad. But where's the lamb for the sacrifice? Where is he? And Abraham answers God Himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. God will provide. Again, we can't take care of it ourselves. God is the one who does it. Where is the lamb that God will provide? Isaiah the prophet, many years after Abraham, foretold of the suffering servant of the Lord, who would be led like a lamb to the slaughter, and he would be pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. And that punishment that would bring us peace would be upon him. God would lay our sin on him. Where is the lamb that God will provide? John the Baptist answers that years later when he says, of Jesus. Look, the lamb of God... Who takes away the sin of the world. So why Jesus? Why did it have to be Jesus? Why couldn't someone else be the Lamb of God? Why not someone like you or me? Well, the sacrifice of Jesus was more powerful than any sacrifice because he was uniquely qualified. There were some qualifications that had to be there, and he had them. He was God in the flesh. Here is a kind of analogy here. With with our blood, we can pass on disease. I know how to pass on sickness real easy. It happens in my family all the time. We just went through a long period of passing on sickness to one another from November to January. It's fairly easy. But you know what? With my blood, I can't pass on health. I would love to be able to do that for my children. When little Alec had strep throat, I would love just to be able to take my health and give it to them and say, there, take my health, you're better, made well. Our blood can't do that. blood of Christ can I can give you my cold but I can't give you my health in the same sense we've been able to pass on sin like a disease for generations with no one to stop it until Jesus whose blood has power to do certain things in the beginning God was planning preparing for the ultimate sacrifice that would be once and for all that would be provided by him you see Jesus was an innocent lamb he had done no wrong he had never sinned that's pretty unique because I think pretty much everybody else here has already sinned, were disqualified. He was the only begotten of the Father, the firstborn of all creation. Hey look, we're all made in God's image, but we're not His only begotten. That's a little bit on the unique qualified side there too. He became our substitute and took our punishment for our sins on the cross. You know what? You might be able to step in for one person, rescue their life, save them, But you can't do it for a world. You're not that unique. You're not that qualified. And it's by the blood of Jesus Christ that not only sins are forgiven, but we have redemption. Meaning that God has given value back into us. He said, the value I place on you is the value of my son. That's how valuable you are. So, you know what? My blood might sustain your life. I can go down the Red Cross and give some blood. And it could sustain you and keep you living. But you know what? It won't give you any added value. It doesn't make you more significant or more important. By faith in the blood of Jesus Christ, we have peace with God. Can your blood bring peace with God? Can your blood make those who are once enemies of God now friends with God? By His blood, we also have freedom. And by faith in His blood, we also have power to overcome the enemy. Today, the Lord has asked us to stand in the same place as Abel or Abraham. To stand in faith for the ultimate sacrifice that God has been planning since the creation of the world. And here is the most amazing part about the Lord's sacrifice on the cross. It wasn't done grudgingly. He did it with joy. He did it with love so that by faith we might be forgiven and have eternal life with Him. You know the words that Jesus said. You've heard them before. For God so loved the world... That He gave His own, one and only Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. Jesus didn't enjoy the cross. He wasn't a masochist. But He looked ahead at what the cross would accomplish. And the Scripture puts it this way. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. That's what He did for us. That's the sacrifice of the Lamb. Right now, we're going to take a moment to take communion together, and we're going to end our time with communion. And so what we're going to do is I'm just going to read this passage. And as I'm reading it, there's people going to be standing around the room. They're going to be holding a goblet that holds juice that represents Christ's blood. They're going to have a plate that represents the the body of Christ. It's a cracker bread. You break that off. You dip it into that juice that represents Christ's blood. And you take it and you eat it. And Jesus told us that we're to do this in remembrance of him. And when we take this, we remember what he did on the cross for us. That we remember that he was a substitute. That he was the lamb that had to pay the penalty for us. Let me read to you from Isaiah 53. And then we're going to take communion together. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before Him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to Him. Nothing in His appearance that we should desire Him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed Him not. Surely He took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered Him stricken by God, smitten by Him, and afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the punishment that brought us peace was upon Him. And by His wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. It goes on... Amen. Dear God, we thank you for the substitute that you provided and that you've made a way, that you provided for us. And Lord, it's not something that we do on our own, but by faith, by trusting in you, Lord Jesus. In this moment, Lord, we pray that we'll be able to meet with you, to commune with you, and again, receive what you have to offer to us. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.